This is the start of our vacation Bible school. I think the first VBS I ever went to was with the United Methodist Church when I was about 10 years old, and I know that Mom only did it just to get us out of the house. I grew up in Iowa, and uh, this church that they sent us to was a, it sat up on a hill and there were fields all around it and tall pine trees surrounding the church, very picturesque, but uh, there was something neat that was in the ditch right beside the church. So during VBS, we had fights with cuckleburrs. How many in here know what a cucklebur is? Woo-hoo, amen. I said that in Hawaii and they were like, huh, what? Oh man, I, we used to go out during our breaks and stuff and have cucklebur fights. Throw them if they get all up in your hair and stick in your back. And what's really fun is when one got in your shirt and you didn't know it and you went back in, sat down in that pew and leaned back. Oh, you found out it was there. We were throwing them in church and I think we drove that Methodist minister just bonkers, okay? Finally, he had to say, stop playing with the cucklebirds. Our attitude was, why? Jesus made them. They must be good. All right. We are going to have some fun, a little bit of fun tonight. And uh, this is our VBS. Now, the actual program that we're doing is if we follow uh, the lessons down there. Now, I'm not going to teach like down there. Down there, they're going to the land down under. And they're going to deal with various creatures and have a good time there. But uh, the theme of day one is the beginning of life. And so we're going to start here in the sanctuary looking at three very important topics. And those three topics we're going to look at tonight are creation. And then we're going to look at God himself. And then we're going to look at life, how God portrays life and the invitation to it in his word. Tomorrow night we are switching. We are not going to be here in the auditorium. We're going to be over in the chapel and uh, we're going to still have our normal programs uh, up, in the, up on the television sets. But uh, tomorrow night, we're dealing with the wonder of life. And so tomorrow night, we're going to deal with creation, God's design in creation. It's not random. It's not accident. It's by design. And then uh, we're going to look at man. And then we're going to look at God's design for eternity. And then the third night, on Friday night, and that's the final night of our VBS, we're going to again be in the church chapel, and we're going to look at both divine and human values. You ever known someone before they got saved, and then after they get saved, their opinions start to change about stuff? That's values. And once you start getting in line with God's values, usually our human values change, don't they? We start to see what's important to the Lord and so on. So those are the three days that we're doing. Now tonight, we're going to start off in the beginning. Those are the very three, first three words that are in your Bible. In the beginning. And uh, I, I, when I look at the power, and you know anything about me, you know I love to study creation, read creation science books. When I look at the power and majesty in this universe... How many of you ever driven a car that was built by an ant? You know, a common ant that crawls on your countertop? You ever driven a car? How about when you, you ever fly in a rocket that was built by an ant? Huh? No? Ever sailed on a ship built by an ant? No? 
Think about the vast dip distance between what an ant knows and what we know. And suddenly it doesn't become quite so hard to realize we're the ant. And God is this other. And his, his, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. As the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts and my ways above your ways. We can't begin to comprehend, and as I look out there, it must be horrible to look at stuff like that and just think it all happened by accident. Man, I look at it and I see the paintbrush of God. I mean, he signed it, he left his signature, he left his fingerprints on everything. That's why he says they are without excuse in Romans chapter 1 because it's so obvious. So the Bible tells us, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things consist. God holds it all together for us. But I'll tell you, I can hardly watch the evening news and hold my temper together. So how in the world? I mean, the Bible says we would be consumed if his anger was kindled but a little. So I'm telling you, not only is his creativity so far above the ant to us, so is his patience, amen? So is his patience. So this is what we're going to talk. We're going to deal with three topics tonight, and I, I, we're laying a foundation we're going to continue. These lessons are built one on top of another. And so we are going to first tonight talk about the creationist world view. And then we're going to talk about the trinity of our creator. Not very often do we hear messages about the trinity. And so tonight we're going to talk a little bit about the trinity. Obviously it's a subject we can't exhaust in one lesson or ten lessons. But we're going to give it a hit tonight. And then we're going to deal finally with the Creator's light of life. You ever walked into a dark room and your little pinky toe says to you, turn the light on, please? Please turn the light on. And you say, oh man, I know this house. And that coffee table just jumps right up. Next thing you know, you're rolling on the floor, holding your foot, and your pinky toe says, I told you so. I told you to turn the light on. So we're going to talk about Jesus and the light of his life. So let's start with the creationist worldview. The creationist worldview. Now think about this. We ought to know these things as a believer because the Bible is very clear in 1 Peter chapter 3. We, are, we should always be ready to be always or be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We ought not, as believers, run away from any subject. Any subject. Because you should know the Word of God, and the Word of God has something to say at about everything we face in life. Virtually everything. Let's just talk, let's start off. We're going to talk about the worldview for just a little bit. Number one, the creationist worldview. 
Let's just suppose, and by the way, you can do this even in a restaurant if you're dealing with an atheist. In fact, I've used this talking to atheists, and the first question I always ask them is, are you an honest atheist or are you a dishonest atheist? Do you tell the truth or are you a liar? They'll always say, well, I'm, I'm an honest atheist. Okay, good. Now that we've established that. You can take a napkin, an ordinary napkin, in a restaurant, lay it down on the table and say this square napkin represents all the human knowledge that we possess. Everything with every science, every computer, every microscope, every telescope, everything we've known from the beginning of time is represented right there on that, on that simple napkin. All right, now hand them a pen and say, now you said you're an honest atheist. Now take this pen and mark a dot on there as big as how much of that knowledge you know. Almost always, they will just take it and go like this. They'll just put a little dot. Okay, great, you got them. Okay. If this screen actually represented the total accumulation of all human knowledge, how much of that knowledge can any person in the world claim to possess? I don't care if you have multiple PhDs. How much could you possess? That's about it right there. I'm serious. Doesn't matter how smart you are, that's it. That's about as much as total human knowledge. You take a guy who knows microscopes and he knows chemistry and he knows biology. Yeah, jump on a John Deere tractor and farm a field. You haven't even begun to know human knowledge yet, amen? Tear down a 457 engine and put it back together blindfolded, okay? You haven't even begun to know what human knowledge is yet. I get on that 767 and I fly across the country, yeah? Tear that jet engine apart and put it back together. You haven't even begun to know. So there you go. If they're honest, they're going to just put a dot and say, that's about it. Now, here's the point. If that's true and that's all you know, and you said you're an honest atheist, listen, only a fool would be arrogant enough to say God doesn't exist if that's all the smarter you are. You don't even know the extent of human knowledge. How can you claim to have knowledge beyond this metaphysical? How can you claim to even have that? So we're talking about the worldview of a creationist. And the Bible doesn't argue about it. The Bible just states it. In the beginning, God. Take it or leave it. That's it. It doesn't debate it. It just tells you this is the way it is. I like Pascal's rager, Blaise Pascal. He didn't live very long. If you look up there and count the years and subtract, you find out. Very young man, but he was a prodigy. He was a savant. He was a genius. He was a mathematician, a physicist, a philosopher. He was absolutely amazing. You read some of his material, and it's beyond even me and beyond what I can understand. He lived from 1623 to 1662. He was also a believer in the Word of God. And he made this statement one time to an atheist once that said, I don't believe there's a God. I think when you die, it's it. It's blackness. It's over. This is what he said, and this is called Pascal's Wager. And you should remember it. You should memorize it. You should use it when you're talking with a Buddhist. You should use it when you're talking with a non-Bible believer or any atheist. Number one, if you say everything turns black when we die and there's nothing beyond this life, then if you're right and I'm wrong being a Bible believer, guess what I lose? Nothing. 
I lose nothing. But if I read my Bible right, and if I'm right and you're wrong, who stands to lose the most? You're going to hell. You stand to lose a lot more than I do. This is called Pascal's Wager. If you are right and I'm wrong, I lose nothing. But if I'm right and you're wrong, you lose everything. Very important to remember that when you're dealing with someone who's not a creationist, someone who believes it all just ends when you die. So what is a worldview? What does that word mean, worldview? Well, it's not hard. It means just what it says. It's your view of the world. How do you view the world? Think of it like a wagon wheel. We're going to put a wagon wheel now. We're going to illustrate with a wagon wheel. Think of it like a wagon wheel, okay? First, there's the hub of the wheel, okay? Well, that's everything you believe. That's your heart, as the Romans called it, your bowels, as the Greeks called it. Your mind uh, is also, they're all interchangeable. They're the real you. That's what you believe. That's the hub of the wheel, okay? It's everything you believe about God, about life, about death or after death, about eternity. Everything you believe is in the hub of your wheel. Now, this hub is the core of your worldview. How you're going to view the world is based on what's in the hub. Okay? Now, your decision-making processes, everything you decide in life is going to be based on what's in the hub. The strength of the wheel is based on that single hub. All right, now let's go to the next section. Then there's the spokes of the wheel. These are the basic issues of life. See how many spokes there are? There's a lot of issues that face us in life, isn't there? There's a lot of them. Uh, what do you, you're going to have to cross paths with or develop opinions about religion, family, morality, education, politics, abortion, justice, medicine, science, death, and about 50,000 other ones. Those are the spokes on the wheel. And those spokes are connected to the hub. So what you believe, you believe in these categories. You have a certain set of beliefs about religion, a certain set of beliefs about eternity, a certain set of beliefs about politics. Those are the spokes. And these are the issue opinions that you have in life. Okay? Now we're dealing with the creationist worldview. Now, where that wheel touches the road, okay, that's how you interact with the world. The hub is everything you know. The spokes are the areas of life that, you're, that you have opinions in. And sometimes those opinions are necessary because they come up when the wheel is touching the road at that spoke. So you have to be able to communicate with people about whatever spoke's touching the ground. This is how you interact with the world. Now, these are the occasions when your worldview gets tested. I believe the Bible. Okay, that's one of the spokes. It's based on what you believe in your heart, your head, your mind, your bowels. It's everything you have. That's what I believe. Now, somebody's challenged it. That spoke is now on the ground. You've got to come up with an opinion. You have to be able to discuss it intelligently with someone. Now, again, let's go back to our wheel again. Your ability to respond to them, whether you just say, I can't talk about that, or I don't want to talk about it, or whether you actually want to communicate to them when that spoke touches the ground, depends upon how much knowledge you have about that particular subject. If you know nothing, you can't talk about nothing. Amen? 
Ignorance is not bliss now, folks, when it comes to this, okay? And whether you're able to respond to the world when that spoke touches is going to depend on what you express in your opinions. Your opinions are your spokes. This is what I believe. And so this is where now, when you, now that you've brought it up, that spoke is touching the ground, I'm ready to talk to you about it. And then the center, the hub, that'll be shaped by the facts that you have about your worldview. You should have a bunch of facts. You should have a bunch of information. I don't care whether it's Bible information, science information, whatever information it is about that subject. You know it, so the next time that spoke hits the ground and somebody challenges you, you're ready to talk to them because you know stuff. You're ready to discuss it. Same with you talking about the Bible or any other thing. Now, my goal through this little short study we're going to be doing here is to reveal evidences, at least a few of them, that may oblige a person to change their thinking. You may be here tonight and maybe you didn't believe there was a, a God or something. I don't know your heart. I don't know your mind. Well, something's going to have to be done. And so that hub has got to have some additional information. Real changes, however, in your worldview or your public witness, any change that you're going to be able to give when that spoke touches the ground, that's entirely up to the person viewing the evidence. They're the ones that have to be ready to admit to it. But can I tell you this? This is what a lot of Christians are like right here. They don't have any information to offer about anything, whether it's the Trinity or whether it's creation science. Listen, and I know this, a broken wheel like that benefits no one. It doesn't benefit Jesus. It doesn't benefit you. And it certainly doesn't benefit your neighbor to whom you're responsible for witnessing for Jesus Christ. So listen, our worldview is very important, no matter what topic you're talking about. What you don't know can't hurt you. How many times have you heard that? Hmm? Yeah, sure. We've all heard it before. Can I tell you something? It's a gigantic lie. Okay? Grab a hold of this guy. Okay? And see if he cares about your lack of knowledge. I didn't know it was a cobra. Oh, well. Call the mortician. Grab a hold of the wrong wire here and see if not knowing will protect you. I didn't know. Yeah, well, it doesn't matter that you didn't know. And the same thing is true with our worldview and the things that we need to know. Saying I don't know and ignorance is bliss is not going to help. It's not going to help anyone. We need to know. We need to try to study. We need to learn. The more knowledge we have about any subject, the better. Now, I grant you, the older you get, it gets harder. Amen? Pastors wanting to memorize Ephesians 6. How many of us old folks in here have done it? Uh-huh. Isn't it funny how that gets harder the older you get? I mean, I'm going like, you know, in, in Awana, we always used to give, you could have two helps. I need about 30 helps, okay, if I'm going to be able to get through it. Let me show you from the Bible what I'm talking about. Genesis chapter number 27, Isaac deceives his father, okay? He's, or uh, uh, Jacob rather, de deceives his father, not, not Isaac. Isaac uh, is the one that's deceived, I for forgive that up there. 
But here's Isaac. He's blind. He's old. He's on his deathbed. And Jacob, in cahoots with his mama, goes in, and they lie to him. He puts on false hair, and he goes in and acts like he's Esau. And uh, he's not, and he lies to his old man. Now, now, Dad, Isaac, lacked knowledge, didn't he? Now, do you think if he'd have had complete knowledge, it would have changed his decision? Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. A lack of knowledge led to a different decision than what would have otherwise been made. Lack of knowledge. What about this guy? Remember him? Gibeonites came up and said, Whew, we have really traveled from far to see you. Look at this moldy bread and look at these old wine sacks that are all no good and our shoes are just worn out. Oh, man, we have really traveled from far. Does anyone believe that Joshua's decision would have been different if he'd had all the facts? Yeah, sure would have. He got buffaloed. He got bamboozled. I mean, his lack of knowledge led to a different decision than he would have otherwise made when they went over the next hill and found out the Gibeonites were living right next door. Oh, that changed everything. But he couldn't kill them now because he made a deal. And that part of that deal is some of the stuff we can get ourselves into when we start agreeing to stuff that we don't know enough facts about and we start saying, yes, that's okay. And the next thing you know, we find out later, it's not okay. But when facts and evidence are intentionally withheld or omitted from someone's understanding, like I'm a, let's just say I'm a professor and I intentionally withhold information from you, okay? That omission, just as in the case of Isaac and Joshua, is going to lead to faulty assumptions and faulty conclusions. Let me illustrate it this way. It's called the one plus one dilemma. Okay? What's one plus one? Y'all in agreement on this? What if you sincerely, honestly believe that one plus one equals three? Would that change all of your mathematical calculations thereafter. It would affect them, wouldn't it? So what you believe in your basic assumptions makes a world of difference in how you're able to come to a conclusion. If one is mistaken in their assumption of the value of one plus one, then all their mathematical calculations and outcomes are going to be skewed in error. The same is true in life. I don't care what topic you're dealing with. It's identical. Let me further illustrate this way. This is, this is a common trick of evolutionists, okay? They do this all the time. Here's what they do. We're going to look at the, We're going to set this up and show you a van. Now, this van has been parked, and then the brake was set, and the driver left. Now, we have a couple of problems with our van. Okay, number one, the parking brake doesn't work right. We know that the parking brake doesn't work right. And so that parking brake slips when the van is facing downhill. So now we need to figure out how much it's slipping, okay? So we test and we determine, we mark where the tire is, and an hour later we mark and we find out the van has moved one inch. One inch. Okay? So we think we are safe then to make the assumption 
we can, we, can we can correctly make an assumption now, okay? Here's our assumption. We can safely assume then, because we know it's moving at one inch per hour with the parking brake set, we can safely assume that that van has rolled 40 feet, or in 40 feet, it has rolled 40 feet, 480 inches in 480 hours. One inch per hour. So what we do, or 20 days, we project. This is where the van now is, but we know that 480 hours ago, 20 days ago, the van was right here. And we assume we can make that decision, right? Wouldn't that be nice? Here's the problem. Then we learn that our assumption has missed the fact that a driver actually got in the van, started it, and drove it to where it is in just 12 seconds. Got out, set the parking brake, and left. What happens to our assumption now? Is our time dating all wrong? Where was the van 480 seconds ago? It was clear up there, and it drove down here in 12 seconds, so wow, we, everything's all wrong. So now here's what we're saying. So what is your conclusion actually, 480 hours or 12 seconds? If you ignore the creator of this universe, you're going to have nothing but false assumptions. In every scientific test you do, every single one is going to be wrong. You're going to make assumptions that are completely wrong because you have omitted the fact that a driver got in that van and drove it down there in 12 seconds. Ignore God. What if we learn now? Here I am, I'm that professor, remember? Now what if I learn about the driver but hid that information from those that I've taught that it was 480 hours? Would that be wrong on my part? Would it be unethical? Would it be immoral? I have a first cousin that's a full professor at Mankato, University of Minnesota at Mankato. He's been there for 35-some years. I love the man. He's a saved man. He knows the Lord Jesus as his Savior. But he teaches a science, and he teaches evolution. And I asked him, I says, Cuz, how can you do this when you know the stuff you're teaching is false? You want to know what his answer was? If you think I'm going to throw away my pension after 35 years, you're out of your mind. Because if I start teaching the truth... I'll get fired. Well, now, then we have to ask, is the professor wrong, unethical, immoral? What's going on here? We're talking about worldview. Wrong assumptions always lead to wrong conclusions, and the same is true with our worldview. Look at that guy pushing that, land, pushing that balloon over. You see how if you make a wrong assumption, you're going to have a wrong conclusion? Is his finger really pushing that balloon? No. Look how small the Eiffel Tower is. Look at that. If you make a wrong assumption, is your conclusion going to be wrong? Yeah. Look at those kids holding that island up. No. Or that guy, he's holding the whole sun right in his hands, like a basketball. Wrong assumptions lead to wrong conclusions. I'm the guy that puts the clouds in the sky. Shh. There's the clouds. Wrong assumptions wrong conclusions. Now, your assumptions are your view of this book. Now let's get back to here. Your assumptions are your view of this book, whether it's the Word of God or it's just ink and paper, is going to determine 
Remember the hub of the wheel? It's going to determine what you got in there. How much you love God. So let's talk about God for just a little bit. That brings us then to the next thing. Does God exist? And if he exists, what's he like? Well, I don't know. I, I know he saved a sinner like me, May 10th, 1972. I'm 50 years old a week ago or so, or a couple, about three weeks ago. And uh, I can still remember as a 17-year-old kid in church, wasn't even saved. And I remember some old guy got up, and uh, at least I, and I thought he was whole. I thought he was decrepit. He stood up in this church and he said, I have been saved now 42 years. And I wasn't saved. And I remember putting my head down and thinking, a Jesus freak for 42 years? How do you do that? And now I've been saved 50 years. And guess what? In the blink of eternity, it doesn't mean anything. We, aren't we are not even going to measure time when we get to, with Jesus. Amen? It ain't even going to matter. I think when Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, and God said, okay, it's time for you to go down. It's been 40 days and 40 nights. I think Moses would have said, huh? Are you kidding me? I haven't even eaten. Wow. Everything changes when you're in the presence of God, amen? Let's talk about the Trinity of our Creator. Learning about creation is just the beginning, okay? It becomes equally important that we grasp something about the nature of our Creator that made it all and revealed Himself to us. He didn't have to. I mean, what could you do with an ant? Would you have any conscience about it? Oh, no, I killed an ant off. No, you would have no conscience about it. Probably already done it. Just think, if God wanted to, the self-sustaining one, we need him. He doesn't need us. But he loves us, and he wants to save his creation. The almighty creator loved us so much that he was willing to, to enter in human form his own creation. Wow. But you know what? Just to say that God became a human being. That single act, which there's lots of verses about it, Isaiah 9, 6, John 1, 14, Philippians 2, 7, 1 Timothy 3, 16. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that say God became a human, all right? But that one statement is not only rejected by all non-Christian faiths, it's even rejected by many who say that they believe the Bible. That do not believe that God was manifest in the flesh. The Lord was, is, and ever shall be the great triune God. He changeth not. Never changes. So let's look a little bit at the Trinity as revealed truth in the precious word, okay? We need to understand some things about the Trinity. First of all, the revealed nature of God. I just want to show you these things. Again, this is a, this is a huge subject, okay? In fact, Brother Terry, you could probably teach a whole course on it, amen, at college. Just on this one subject. In fact, they actually do. It's called uh, Theology Proper. Theology Proper is a whole course on God. But I just want to show you seven things, okay? Number one is that he is one Lord. Number two, the use of plural pronouns. Number three, Old Testament theophanies. Number four, the God-man prophecies. Number five, 
the one spirit of God. Number six, the infinity of God. And number seven, the plural name of God. So let's look at them. First of all, the one Lord claim. How many of you have heard this scripture before? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. I spoke to a Jew once. I was visiting and this Jewish guy answered the door and I was talking with him. And he says, uh, somehow it got brought up that uh, you believe Jesus was God. I said, well, so does the Holy Scripture. And uh, he said, no, it's nowhere in the Bible. Here, oh, and he quoted, he set himself up by saying, here, O Israel, the Lord I got is one Lord. I said, how many Hebrew words are there for the word one? It, he, he immediately, his face just changed because he knows. So let me share you what I'm talking about. How can Yahweh be three and yet be one? The two primary Hebrew words for the number one, okay? And uh, uh, 12 different words, but all, all but 49 of them, in other words, 1,352 times it's used. It's one of two Hebrew words. This one, which is Aish, okay? And it's this one, which is Echad. Both of them are translated one. Well, in that Bible verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Which one is the one? Okay, let's find out. Aish is one of singularity. In other words, there's just one involved. Like, for instance, one candle, one, one yellow person among the blue, one moon, one penny. Singular. That's the Hebrew word Aish. Okay, but what one is used in Deuteronomy 6.4? It's the next one. And the next one is the Hebrew word echad. And echad is one of unity. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation. Does that, how many, how many states are in that nation? How many people? So saying one has not a clue about how much is in it. One. One of unity, like one cluster of grapes, one nation under God, one family, one cluster of trees. The largest plant in the world is an aspen tree in Colorado. It's one plant, but it covers 400 acres of land. And all those little trees you come see coming up are just this part of the same plant. Now, so that's one. Here we go. Let's look at the next one. Here's some scripture verses where one Aish is used and some scripture verses where Echad is used. So the next time they try to tell you that verse, that Bible verse, or a Jehovah's Witness tries to quote that verse, just ask them if they know which Hebrew word is for the, one, for the word one. Use of plural pronouns. You ever notice that God oftentimes speaks of himself in the plural? Let us create man in our image and after our likeness. Same thing he did at the Tower of Babel. He said, let us go down and see if altogether what we have heard is true. Plural pronouns. Number three, Old Testament theophanies. If God is God and he wants to show up as a piece of human flesh, he can do that, amen. He's God. What stops him? 
He's God. He can do it. In fact, he did it to Abraham. He had a couple of angels with him. He sat down. He ate lunch. Abraham washed their feet. And then he got up and he said, now we're going down to Sodom. And that's where he dickered with him about Lot. The two angels kept going to Sodom and God went back home. After he ate with Abraham and Abraham washed his feet. If God wants to, and by the way, it says it's Lord, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. If God wants to, he can become a human. He did it with Jacob. He wrestled with Jacob. He did it with Moses. I will cover you with my hand and hide you in the cleft of the rock. As I pass by, you can see my hinder parts. He was human form. He did it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We put three men in the fire. How come I see four and the form of the fourth is like the Son of God? If God wants to, he can appear as a human anytime he wants to. He was human to Adam when he walked in the cool of garden. He was human when he took Enoch. He was human when Isaiah saw him sitting on his throne. He was human when Ezekiel saw him. He was human when Daniel saw him. God wants to be a man. He can be a man. Unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is given. And the government shall be upon us and his name shall be called. Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then there's human aspect prophecies. Uh, Emmanuel was to be conceived, God with us, to be conceived. Really? That sounds an awful lot like entering the earth through human. Yeah, Isaiah said the government's going to be on his shoulder, he's going to be God. Micah said he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And I'm always amazed in Matthew chapter number 2 because when Herod asked them, quote the verse, they quote the verse, but then he says, Thou Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be least among the tribes of Judah, yet out of thee shall come he which is going to be governor of my people Israel. And they stop. They always stop. I like the last part of that verse where it says, Whose goings forth, whose existence has been from old, from everlasting. So the everlasting God is going to be born in Bethlehem. And then in Zechariah, they ask him when they see God, Yahweh, he's talking, talking, talking. And it's Yahweh, it keeps repeating, L-O-R-D, capital, that's Yahweh. And then he says, he says to him, he says, and they will look upon me whom they have pierced. And it says they will ask of him, what are these wounds in thine hands? And he will say, these are the wounds wherewith I was wounded in the house of my friends. Yeah, there's a lot of theophanies. Number five, one spirit. You know, the God is referred to as a spirit 296 times in the Bible. Seventy of those times, it's a direct reference to the Heavenly Father. 215 times, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. But guess what? Here's a surprise. Do you know he's called the Holy Spirit when there's 11 references to the Son, when he's called the Spirit of God? Hmm. The Bible says God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The infinity concept. Okay, how could God be three and yet be infinite? Well, this isn't hard to figure out. I'm not even a mathematician, and I can figure this out. What is that thing? What is that symbol? It's on all your cameras. It's called infinity, isn't it? It's infinity. And no, I don't mean to infinity and beyond, okay? I'm not talking about that one, okay? But infinity, that's what it means. Well, here's the thing. Let's suppose we take infinity and divide it by three. 
even though there was no division necessary here. But let's suppose we take something that's infinite and divide it by three. Guess what? Even the subsets of infinity have to be infinite. Amen? You with me on this mathematical difficulty? It's not a mystery. Even the subsets have to be also infinite. God, the Lord Jesus, told his apostles at least a half a dozen, I think eight times, he said, I came out from the Father. Ectuto, I came out from, from the midst of the Father. This is a great author. He's no longer a professor, but for four decades he was a professor at Oxford University in England. And uh, he is a tremendous mathematician, Dr. Richard Swinburne. I had my students read a paper that he wrote. It's just mind-blowing. He has two great books. He has written about 50 books, but he has two that are absolutely amazing. The Existence of God, and he has another one called The Mathematics of God. And if you read these books, I promise, it's written, some of it's written on a level that's even above what I can understand. But I'm telling you, nobody can read his book without believing there's a God unless they're just flat out a, an unbelieving infidel. They put the book down and say, I refuse to believe it because he shows it mathematically. Number seven is the plurality of God's holy name. What was the very first word used in the Bible for God? In the beginning, well, what is that Hebrew word? Right there. That's it, Genesis 1.1. And they read right to left. So this is what they read. E-L-O, they insert the O, H-I-M. If we put it the other way, this is the, Greek, this is the word that's used. Elohim is the Hebrew word. But do you know in a Hebrew language, whenever there's I-M on a word, it's plural. It's the same in the English as if we put an S. From the very beginning, what was God saying in Genesis 1.1? In the beginning, and if you want to be flat out honest, it should say, in the beginning, the gods created the heaven and the earth. But we know that's not so, amen? Because he's one. But yet it's plural. Why in the world would God use a plural word for himself? That's why the Jewish guy backed down. Another reason is because of that. It's plural. And Elohim, by the way, is used in the Bible 2,345 times. I think... God wants us to get the message, amen. So we've looked first at the creation, and then we've looked at the triune God. Now next, let's talk about the creator's light of life. And so if you have a camera and you want to take pictures of these verses, do that, because the time's going to rob us. Uh, time is always my enemy when I'm speaking. So what was the very first command of God? The very first command of God was, let there be, that's it. Everything before that verse, verses 1 and 2, they're all descriptive. Is in the beginning was... You know, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was up form, and it's all descriptive. And then you come to verse 3, and God said, let there be light. His very first command. Do you know God's word refers to the Almighty as light? Over and over and over and over. Let's look at just a couple of them, okay? Go to John chapter 1. Beginning of verse 6, this is the ministry of uh, John the Baptist. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came to bear witness, uh, came for a witness to bear witness of the light, 
that all men through him might believe. He, John, was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Go down to 1 Timothy. Jump to first, the little book of 1 Timothy. Look at chapter 6 as the Apostle Paul closes out this pastoral epistle. Look what he says. Beginning, we'll just read verses 15 and 16. Which in his times, Paul says, he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. And then go to 1 John chapter 1. Not far from the beginning of the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 1, look at verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is what? Light. And in him is no darkness at all. When I was in the army, we had a lot of maneuvers and you got to put this camouflage stick in your face, break up the face so they can't see it. And, and I remember I washed my face, I scrubbed my face and everything and I thought it was clean and then I went home. And I walked in the door and Karen was like, ah! Go look at yourself in the mirror. You know, you think you're clean and then you walk into a little brighter light and guess what? You're not. You're filthy. Same thing's true with us. We think we're clean. But the closer we get to the light of God, guess what? It doesn't make us more righteous. We become more dirty. We begin to see ourselves for the sinners that we are. Then, for reasons which we may never comprehend, the Lord, that glorious light, entered the very world and offered to us his light for our salvation. Every one of these scriptures right here, John 8, 12, 1 Peter 2, 9, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And it says he has called you unto his marvelous light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Walk in the light while you have the light. 1 John chapter number 5, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us of all sin. 1 John chapter number 1, verse number 7. He is that glorious light and he offers it to us. And through his holy word, we can have that light. He makes it so that we can have it. The book of Psalms chapter 119, verse 30 says, The entrance of thy words giveth what? Guess what? Light. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. Turn there. We're right at the end. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Look at Paul and what he said in verse 10. Speaking of the Lord Jesus, he says, But now is manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He is the light. 
How many songs do we sing? The light of the world is Jesus. How many hymns do we sing about God being the light? So how can I be saved? How can I have this light? How can I get closer to the light of God? Well, the Bible says no man can approach unto it, but guess what? He did arrange for you to have the salvation. We get to have a little taste of it right here. First of all, you need to know you're a sinner, amen? You ready for that? Romans 3.23 says all have sinned. Number two, you need to realize that God's going to punish all sin. All sin. He's either going to punish it at Calvary or in hell. So where is yours punished? Where are your sins being punished? At Calvary? Or will you suffer in hell forever with them? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. And he's talking about that second death. Then you need to realize Jesus Christ was your sacrifice. That's why he came. He came so that he could die on the cross as your blood sacrifice, through which you could be made a child of God. Romans 5.8, he commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then you need to do this. The rest is on you. All that knowledge won't save you any more than standing beside a pool of water on blazing flame, knowing that that water will douse your flames, you can stand right there and burn to death. You need to jump in the water. The next one is yours. The others are knowledge. Now you need to pray and accept him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The light of the world came into the darkness. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Thank the Lord I'm looking for that government. Amen? Because our current one isn't doing so hot. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You need him.